Well, that was the opening music to Star Trek, the motion picture, released in 1979, and directed by one of our favorite directors, Robert Wise, which is why we're reviewing it on our podcast, and you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net. Or in Facebook, just search for ClassicMovieReviews.net, and that's all spelled out as a word. And in Apple Podcasts and iTunes, you can just search for Classic Movie Reviews and look for the logo that's uh, got the black and white film reel. And this is a double feature review. We're also reviewing Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, which was released in 1982. Uh, Typically, or most of the time, we, we... don't go into the 80s, but we just felt like we had to review this one. And I remembered uh, which other movie we reviewed from the 80s. It was Christmas Story. Uh, because that's another movie that we just had to review. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. You'll shoot your eye out. So, uh, I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from sunny, spring-like North Bend. And I'm Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles where we have overcast skies and intermittent rain showers. Uh, it's very reminiscent of the springtime in Seattle. Yeah, it's weird how some, sometimes we have a really similar weather <laughs> this time of year. Yeah, we yeah. do. Yeah. Or it flip-flops. Yeah, so Star Trek. Star Trek, wow. Star Trek. Well, you know, I, I got it so far into this, I... I've completed a side-by-side comparison of the two movies, and uh, it's amazing. It's like they're so different. I was thinking, and I think I may have mentioned this in a text or an email, this, they, these two films would make a great television uh, docudrama about the making of the two, how different they were, the, contra- the contrast and compare. And then in the background, you could see them all worrying about what was going to happen with Star Wars. Right. Because I think they were sort of trying to trying to get it to catch up from the first Star Wars film. But uh, I think it's an understatement to say these two movies are quite different from each other. 
Yeah, and it, but it's also interesting because there's some callbacks to the first movie in this movie. Yes. And, yeah. and I was like, wow, that's almost exactly a shot-for-shot scene from the first one. Um, so I'll have to remember to mention a couple of those. Well, some background. It was uh, made by Paramount Pictures, both of them. And uh, the uh, Paramount Pictures at that time had the same people in their executive position, so they were kind of managing the overall picture. But from there, going forward, everything about the... Uh, setup of the story, the budget, and everything was quite different. The uh, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan was made for like, I think maybe 20% of the budget that the first one was made for. I think the uh, Star Trek motion picture had a budget of $46 million and Star Trek The Wrath of Khan was $11 million. Wow, because, you know, I was going to say that it looks... I think it may be the advances in technology around special effects, but the second one I actually thought looked more expensive. <laughs> well, so do I. I think it's the use of special effects, but also the... Uh, it seems to me that Star Trek, the motion picture, was a movie that was made by a committee. There wasn't just Robert Weiss. There were some executives from Paramount. There was Gene Roddenberry. Uh, Star Wars came out, and Star Wars was this enormous success. And somebody at Paramount turned to somebody at Paramount and said, what do we have like that? <laughs> and so, ding! And Paramount was saying, no, no, we shouldn't be doing this as a TV series. Uh, this is, this, we should make this as a feature. What, what can we do as a feature? And they started looking at the two-hour pilot from Phase 2, and they said, uh, this, we'll do, we'll do this as the feature. And, uh, <laughs> and so we then began the crazed process of trying to get that script to work as a feature. I'm, I'm sure there's a, lots of meetings be, behind closed doors, you know, discussing, well, how do we do this? How do we do this in a way that makes it uh, <clears throat> distinguishable from, from everything else we've done so far? And, 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 you know, gives it its own life and its own uniqueness. We were the first movie to be made from a TV series, to my knowledge. And so we were really filled with the idea of we had to make this really important. We had to make this much bigger. And we were, we were trying too hard. I think at times that uh, Robert Weiss might have just said, geez, this is, I don't know what we're doing tomorrow. We keep making changes in the screenplay. My principal, principal task was trying to reconcile the disagreements between uh, Harold Livingston and Gene Roddenberry. Gene and I were all, always at odds. They were both frantically writing away uh, highly divergent versions of the same scenes and uh, were in a significant competition. And I can understand Roddenberry's position. This was his creation, and he didn't want it taken from him. But the longer they went, the more difficult it became. Because after a certain number of weeks, Leonard and, and Bill's contracts, a clause kicked in that said they had script approval. So in addition to the producer and the associate producer, the director, you now had the vested interests of the two stars. Just think of the money that that would cost to do that. I mean, 
all these people waiting for the next page. It's interesting, by, by contrast, uh, when Casablanca was made in the early 40s, <clears throat> they didn't have a screenplay in place for that film, and uh, actors would be waiting for the rewrites to show up so that then they could film it, and that turned out to be one of the best movies ever made. So it can work, whereas with Nicholas Meyer uh, and Star Trek The Wrath of Khan, he was, he was definitely in charge, and they, uh, as one of the actors said, they moved Gene Roddenberry upstairs. He was out of the picture pretty much. Yeah, I read that where he, so. he wanted to have uh, full creative control in the second movie, but they had felt, the executives at Paramount felt that one of the reasons that the first movie got to be so expensive and almost uh, missed its release date was because he was so involved in rewrites and and um, and being you know upset about how the story was playing out and so they kind of just cut him right out of the picture on the second one you you'll be on the you'll be on the top floor in the, in the cor- <laughs> in the corner office we'll call you if we need you yeah yeah don't hold your breath well, nicholas meyer was the director for the second film and his background had been primarily in television up until that time although he had done some other films he did uh, one that i like a lot uh the seven percent solution which is a sherlock holmes film he had directed that but uh, when he was interviewed for this job the two or three people that were interviewing him said could you make this movie for less than 46 million dollars and his response was for 46 million dollars i could make five movies we all know and love Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But what's so interesting about this is it's a movie that almost never got made. There was great concern about the future of Star Trek at the studio. And it was obvious that if this, if number two didn't work and make them a lot of money, that the franchise itself might just disappear. The studio wasn't happy. They weren't happy with the way things went on Star Trek The Motion Picture. The original uh, Star Trek One was budgeted at about 24, 25 million. And it went to 44, 45 million. And the bulk of that was in visual effects, as I was told. Bob Wise, who was a wonderful director, and Gene Roddenberry, the two of them were somewhat at odds. I heard that during the production of that one, that uh, there were pages occurring not daily, but hourly. So the thing just ballooned and was completely out of control. So Michael Eisner decides, yeah, we're going to do Star Trek again, but it has to be done for a lot less money. So it's a, he, he really, I guess he really knew the ins and outs of, of getting it on, on film and, and getting it done quickly. He got, he got every dollar of budget onto the screen. So I, I wanted to pick up on what you're saying about Robert Wise being frustrated. I, th- I would think, I, I would think that he would have been frustrated um, because, like you said, he's done Academy Award winning films and we've reviewed quite a few of his films and they're they're excellent he was quoted as well i I read i don't know if he was quoted but i read that during the premiere during that wormhole scene where they're kind of stuck trying to shoot that asteroid that he kind of covered his face and shook his head because this was really more of a rough cut that went out as the as the final film and it wasn't quite ready for prime time I read that same thing, and uh, I did not know this, but apparently he redid a, a, a director's cut in 2001. And I, I, I didn't know that was around. I, I have to do some research. 
I know the one I watched is not the director's cut because it's, uh, you know, there are parts of it you're thinking, really? It has to go on this long? It's just, it seemed ponderous to me. And I think that's part of the reason why it got to be so expensive, that first film. And it, and it was it was almost delivered late. They really had to rush it to get it um, out to the theaters in time. And I I was watching the making of, and they had this really cool shot of this warehouse on the Paramount lot with all these canisters of film just waiting to be delivered. They were all labeled and ready to go, but they needed that last that last reel of film, and it it just kind of hit home like how until fairly recently that it was a physical thing that had to be shipped out to all these theaters to to get the movie to where it needed to be and now it's just a digital download to the projector i can still remember at the uh, greyhound bus depot in lewistown uh occasionally i'd be down there for one reason or another because it was close to my dad's plumbing and heating business and you'd see him taking film off of the bus in those big big canisters for both of the theaters in town. I think this is I think this was one of the real challenges for the film because you had Gene Roddenberry involved who had 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 a successful TV series with Star Trek and uh you know the quality of those episodes go from kind of laughably bad to kind of amazing. <laughs> so you know like so there's a real wide range there in terms of what what those shows have and you know, we had 2001 come out in the theaters. We had Star Wars come out in the theaters before this. And, and I think there was some pressure on his part to want to create something that was sort of more like 2001, sort of like this awe-inspiring spectacle. And it has moments where I think it achieves that, but I think it also just drags. It just It's just too long. I remember... We all went to see it in Chicago, and it was uh, about halfway through. I was getting like antsy and nervous. I, you know, come, look, is this going anywhere? And one of the criticisms that came from people that made the second film is that there wasn't any real villain that you could identify with. There was this huge thing coming through space, but boy, they cleared that up in the second, the Wrath of Khan. Man, that guy was a true villain. Ricardo Montalban. I don't know you. forget a face, Mr. Jackal, isn't it? I never thought to see your face again. Jackal, who is this man? Criminal captain, a product of late 20th century genetic engineering. What do you want with us? Sir, I demand of you. You are in a position to demand nothing, sir. I, on the other hand, am in a position to grant nothing. 
What you see is all that remains of the ship's company and crew of the Botany Bay, marooned here 15 years ago by Captain James T. Kirk. Listen, you men and women, you have a cap and cap. Save your strength, Captain. <laughs> These people had sworn to live and die at my command 200 years before you were born. Do you mean he never told you the tale? To amuse your captain? No? Never told you how the Enterprise picked up the Botany Bay lost in space from the year 1996. Myself and the ship's company in cryogenic freeze. I've never even met Admiral Kirk. Admiral. 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 Never told you how Admiral Kirk sent 70 of us into exile on this barren sand heap with only the contents of his cargo base to sustain us. You lie! On City Alpha 5 there was life! A fair chance! This is City Alpha 5! He's, uh, he's become one of my favorites. There's another one we'll have to do where he plays a detective in Boston. It was made in 1951 or two. I forget the name of it right now, but I, uh, I, I've added that to our list. I think he was underappreciated and underused for a long time. And then he made this huge re- rebound with Fantasy Island. And remember when he used to advertise for Chrysler and their wonderful Corinthian leather? Cordova. To drive it is to experience the pleasure of a truly roadworthy automobile in the Chrysler tradition of luxury. Yes, even rich Corinthian leather. To this day, I don't know what Corinthian leather is. He's the perfect villain. And and right out of the gate, you mentioned in one of our uh, earlier visits, there's more action in the first few minutes of the second film than there is in the whole Yeah, I think I movie. texted you that I said there was more action in the first five minutes of Wrath of Khan than the entire Star Trek The Motion Picture. <laughs> this is the Starship Enterprise. Your message is breaking up. Can you give us your coordinates? Repeat, this is the Starship... Enterprise, our position is Gamma Hydra, Section 10. In the neutral zone. Hull penetrated. Life support systems failing. Can you assist us, Enterprise? Can you assist Data us? Data on Kobayashi Maru. Subject vessel is third-class neutronic fuel carrier. Crew of 81, 300 passengers. Damn. Mr. Sulu, plot an intercept course. May I remind the captain? Starship enters the zone. I'm aware of my responsibilities, mister. Estimating two minutes to intercept. Now entering the neutral zone. Warning, we have entered neutral zone. We are now in violation of treaty, Captain. Stand by transporter room ready to beam survivors aboard. Captain, I've lost their signal. Alert. Sensors indicate three Klingon cruisers bearing 316 Mark IV, closing fast. Visual. Battle stations, activate shields. Shields activated. Inform the Klingons we are on a rescue mission. They're jamming all the frequencies, Captain. Klingons on attack course and closing. Klingons on attack Mr. Sulu, get us out of here. I'll try, Captain. Alert. 
Gunsling on torpedoes activated. Alert. Evasive action. Engineering, damage report. Main energizer hit, Captain. Engage auxiliary power. Prepare to return fire. Shield's collapsing, Captain. Fire all phasers. No power to the weapons, Captain. Captain, it's no use. We're dead in space. Activate escape pods. Send out the log boy. All hands abandoned ship. Repeat. All hands abandoned ship. All right, open her up. Any suggestions, Admiral? Prayer, Mr. Savick. The Klingons don't take prisoners. I, every part of the film for the uh, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, you can see how well the budget was used, even to the music.
uh, Jerry Goldsmith did the music for Star Trek Captain The Motion Skull. Picture, but for The Wrath of Khan, it was James Horner. And James Horner was fairly new to the, to the whole business compared to Jerry uh, Goldsmith, and his uh, fee was substantially less than the music would have been uh, had Goldsmith done it. So they were. He was uh, the director and and the people involved in it really had their eye on making it for the smallest amount of money possible with the highest return. The French director Robert Bresson said, "My job is not to find out what the public want and give it to them. My job is to make the public want what I want, and that's the way I sort of." think rightly or wrongly I've never been very interested in what the public wants so I made the Star Trek movie that I wanted to see on the assumption that if I liked it other people would like it well one of the things that uh, I did because I got so into the f- two films is I did a side-by-side of the uh, of the two uh, movies the same executives as I mentioned uh, were in charge at Paramount Pictures for both films but it seems to me that the script for Star Trek The Motion Picture was written by a committee. There were screenwriters. Gene Roddenberry kept making changes. There were times when the script wasn't ready, when everybody showed up to do the filming. Whereas with The Wrath of Khan, best I can tell, the script, while not always perfect, the, uh, the team that was putting it together, led by the director, Nicholas Meyer, really kept to a tight tight time frame and tight budget requirements and they had moved Gene Roddenberry <clears throat> out of the process and he was much less involved in it. I think he had some title of consultant on the film or something like that but they really didn't use him that much. I had to feel this the pain that Robert Weiss would have felt because here's the consummate professional who's made Academy Award winning films and he's got all these people running around. I visualize him sitting there or standing there thinking, when are they going to get the script so we can film it or refilm it or refilm it again? It's really evident to me that that happened near the end of the film where they finally, the crew gets to the the Voyager thing that's going through space, the bigger. It's almost like they're standing there waiting for the scripts to be handed to them so so they can actually say their lines. I mean, that could have been done, in, t- in my view, in half of the time that it was taken. Yeah, that was, I think that was the almost the unanimous conclusion of the reviews of the film. Now, we contrast that with Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. <clears throat> it's got a, it's got truly a villain. I mean, that, that guy is, is possessed by the devil. It's fast-paced. It involves terraforming an entire planet, if not the whole system of planets, and the music really moves along. Yeah, the music the music cues, there's some that pick up from the first movie, like when we're seeing the Enterprise for the first time. Thank you. 
authorized Admiral Kirk's shuttle. We're cleared for docking. Approach portside torpedo bay. Enterprise, this is Admiral Kirk's party on final approach. Enterprise welcomes you. Prepare for docking. Uh, it, it, there's a few cues that are similar that to me sort of are the Star Trek m movie music cues. You know, you hear them a lot in the in the movies. Uh, I I just turned over my page, and I said earlier when we were first beginning that I had done a deep dive into this. Film. Yeah, we should hear some more about your research here. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I got, I have twenty seven items. I I, I wouldn't uh, if I went through those. I would be I would be as boring as anything anybody doesn't watch. But um, <laughs> maybe hit the highlights then. <laughs> I, I wanted to just to spend a couple of minutes on the cast of both films. Obviously, Robert Weiss is our favorite director, or one of our favorite directors. He also did other films that we have not reviewed that are equally as well done. One that's from 1953, Destination Gobi. It's a World War II film that's really excellent. And then from 1978, the Hindenburg, the behind-the-scenes story of the crashing of the Hindenburg. And then Gene Roddenberry. I never knew this about him, but he was in World War II in the Air Corps. He flew 89 combat missions wow, during the war. that's incredible. And he was a police officer. He's had an amazing life. And uh, we can't overlook William Shatner. Yeah. My goodness. He's now 88 years old and still going strong. He trained as a Shakespearean actor, and he was uh, Spencer Tracy's aide-de-camp in the Judgment at Nuremberg film from 1961. And he's, uh, to say nothing, he's, he's uh, got a lot of uh, endurance because he's been doing films and TV and TV shows and ads and everything else. And then... Nichelle Nichols as Lieutenant Yahura. She was excellent. Did you ever see the film Mr. Budwing? No. Let's see, I told you I did a lot of She was in that. That's a 1966 film with James Garner. He, he has amnesia, and he comes up with his name. He sees a Budweiser truck and a plane fly over. So he gives himself the name Mr. Budwing. Oh, weird. <laughs> it's, a, it's a black and white amnesia film. That's a little bit on that crew. Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Nicholas Meyer did uh, two other Star Trek films following this one. Um, let's see. And there was someone... Uh... Oh, yes. Christy Alley. Oh, yeah. I forgot she was in this movie. <clears throat> it's her first She's film. in this film. Yeah. It was her first film, and she was so enamored with her ears, she'd take them home at night. Well, she was a real Star Trek fan and, and had imagined that she she wanted to be Spock's daughter. And it, <laughs> she, So this must, have been, this, <laughs> this must have been really cool for her to be in the movie and to be able to work with Leonard Nimoy and, and the whole crew oh. of the Star Trek TV series. And Leonard Nimoy, what a, what a wonderful career he had. He was in television and movie Star Trek versions. They had to be uh, 
to make the film original, uh, no, to make the second film, he had to be uh, coaxed out of retirement and not doing it because he was he wasn't sure he wanted to do it. But they persuaded him to do that. But then they had to agree that there'd be some kind of a death scene at the end of the film or during the film. I read also that he was he, he was sort of tired yeah, of it. Yeah, I read that he was he had to be coaxed into coming back for the first film too. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, he was kind of the he was cast. kind of reluctant to come back and play Spock, but uh, I thought that was interesting mm-hmm. that they had set up the Wrath of Khan in a way that they could make another film without him if he really didn't want to come back. Yes. Yes. But then he came back for like a whole another co- a whole bunch of more movies, so he I guess he ended up embracing it. Well, the uh the film following Star Trek The Wrath of Khan and then the one after that, it was kind of an arc of three films all involving him and his return, the search for mm-hmm. him and amazing. Uh for fans of really old television shows in 1967 through 1973, Leonard Nimoy was one of the main characters in Mission Impossible. Oh yeah, the forerunner of the of the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible films. So that's a little bit on the cast. Not certainly not everybody, but uh, as I uh, as I watched the second one, I I got to admit that it got to me, and I think I remember it got to me in the theater too. But that scene where Spock is in the radiation chamber. Ship. Out of danger. Yes. Don't grieve, Admiral. It is logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. I never took the Kobayashi Maru test. Until now. What do you think of my solution? scene where they're he's giving a eulogy admiral kirk's giving a eulogy to spock what they did in the second movie which they really totally missed the mark on in the first one is they they made you care about the characters they yeah they they gave the characters more depth than a soul to follow i agree and uh yeah that is a very very uh well done scene you know i I overlooked (coughs) ricardo montaban but i've said enough about him i guess He's just outstanding. Yes, and we and you did confirm. I know film. we talked about this before that that is his real chest. <laughs> I went to the Library of Congress and personally visited the files, <laughs> and can, can truly say that there was no 
apparatus covering up his chest. That was him at the age of 62. Yeah, he was in good shape. That man was in good shape. The, they wrote the screenplay without having asked if he would be willing to come back and play Khan again. Because he was doing Fantasy Island at the time. And so once they had the screenplay together, they, they, they asked him, hey, would you be willing to come back and play Khan? And he was open to it, but they had to kind of come up with an arrangement by which he could do both. And that's one of the reasons why um, Admiral Kirk and Khan never meet face-to-face in the film, because they were filming at different times to accommodate his schedule. He must have been a busy person, because doing those Fantasy Island shows, that was a full-time job just for that. Well, moving into more depth, I put on my snorkeler, and uh, here we go. (laughs) This The second, the Star Trek The Wrath of Khan comes out of a 1967 Star Trek TV film, a show called Star Trek The Space Seed. And Khan uh, has been assigned to a 15-year prison sentence on this, on this forlorn planet. And he's, a, he's vowed to seek revenge against Kirk. And, and during that, he finds out about the Genesis device, which is another great plot They've got this device that can terraform anything. Yeah, that's awesome sci-fi right there. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you imagine that in the hands of the wrong person like him? Well, that's why... Uh, that, he'd, he'd run amok. Yeah, that's why DeForest Kelly, Kelly's uh, character Bones, uh, or McCoy, is so upset by the fact when he learns about the Genesis Project, uh, he's like, well... It literally is Genesis. Power creation. Have they proceeded with their experiments? Well, the tape was made about a year ago, so I can only assume they've reached stage two by now. But dear Lord, do you think we're intelligent enough to... Suppose... What if this thing we use where life already exists? It would destroy such life in favor of its new matrix. Its new matrix? Do you have any idea what you're saying? I was not attempting to evaluate its moral implications, Doctor. As a matter of cosmic history, it has always been easier to destroy than to create. Not anymore. Now we can do both at the same time. According to myth, the Earth was created in six days. Now watch out. Here comes Genesis. We'll do it for you in six minutes. Really, Dr. McCoy, you must learn to govern your passions. They will be your undoing. Logic suggests... Logic? My God, the man's talking about logic. We're talking about universal Armageddon. You green-blooded inhuman. Bridge to Admiral Kirk. Admiral. This is a totally destructive weapon. What do you now? We can like wipe out a planet yeah. in seconds. You know. Little does he know that that almost happens to them. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit of foreshadowing for later. Yeah. So, Kirk uh, is on a training mission with these uh, trainers, uh, new new members of the fleet, and. Uh, on another, uh, in another ship, there's a USS Reliant that's testing this Genesis device. And the two lead officers in that are somehow captured by Khan. So now he's got a ship and the Genesis device, and he's got those two officers. And boy, I tell you, it was intense when he puts that worm into their ear. Yeah, that was... That's that another... Was <laughs> 
<laughs> and this is still the first act of the film. Yeah, the special effects of oh, man. Like them being on the planet and kind of like trying to find the signs of life with their tricorders and then coming upon that little base that they have there with those shipping containers. And then the first time we meet Khan and his crew, that was intense. And, and and I love that I love that first speech that Khan has where he's talking about how they've been marooned there and what happened to them and it was just like get sucked in to the film at that point I'm like a hundred percent in at that point. Well, and and I yeah, I had some you know I this is odd to say maybe but I I had some empathy for the guy because his wife had died and he's on this planet and he's got the, he's the biggest narcissist in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> he's trapped. He's got a big. He's got a bigger <laughs> ego than Kirk, <laughs> <laughs> and a better and a better chest. <laughs> so the two the two officers that he kidnaps are Commander Chekhov and Captain Terrell, and he makes them do his bidding because he's got these indigenous creatures from this planet that he can put into their brain and then he can control their thoughts. And I'm thinking, I mean, it doesn't get any better than this. There's like all these stories going on. It's almost like one of those uh, ser- serials from the 30s and 40s where every yeah, it chapter... It all hangs together. It all hangs it, together, There's so yeah. many different things going on, but it's totally hanging together, and I'm totally buying into it, every bit of it. You know, the other thing that struck me, and I'll never, we'll never know this, but it seemed like everybody involved in the second film was having a much better time than those in the first. <clears throat> yeah, the first one felt so somber. Gosh, it was... But here, it was life or death every minute. Yeah, I remember the reading that there was a lot of just standing around like the bridge or or um, other areas within the ship looking at green screens and kind of being told to react to like whatever was going to be on the screen later, which they didn't even really know at the time what the monster or, or whatever it was going to be would look like. Yeah, nobody had figured that out yet. Yeah, so they, you know, so I think there was, you know, it's, it's hard to act in front of a green screen especially that was fairly new back then in terms of that kind of technology now now it's sort of like the, you know every movie has that in it almost oh yeah and it's so seamless these days you can really hardly tell yeah where it's used well then to add to the plot and the depth of the plot this genesis device was developed by Kirk's former lover Dr yeah. Dr Marcus and their son David. Yeah, turn turn so, turn the drama up to eleven. So we got, you know, it's like... so we, got we got a madman running around. He's captured this device. He's got a ship. He's got these two guys he's controlling, and this device. Was... He wants revenge. <laughs> he, wants he wants revenge, revenge on Kirk. <laughs> and here's Kirk. He's assumed command on a training vis- uh, mission, and oh my gosh, he gets ambushed, and many yeah. of the trainees are killed and and wounded. Uh, and and now the now the. The story's really on. As I was watching it, I was thinking that it's really a story about the the hubris of the two main characters, right? And I think it almost brings Kirk down, but he kind of reins it in near the end, but but Khan can't, you know? And I think Kirk has a line that uh, Khan is nothing nothing if not predictable or consistent or something like that. Yeah, one of the officers, I forget which one, it might have been Leonard Nimoy that figured out that Khan was uh, only two-dimensional in his fighting techniques because he really hadn't done that before. And Kirk figures out a way to uh, 
remotely interfere with the Reliance shields, and he, he gets them to go down. Yeah, because cause Kirk has got so much battle experience, or that whole crew, really. Yeah. And they're thinking in three dimensions, because they're in space, obviously, so they can go in any direction. So Yeah, that was cool. I mean, it, it's sort of obvious, and you'd think, well, wouldn't Khan realize that? But it, it, it is a good plot device to kind of give you that uh, build up to that scene when there's an awesome scene when the um, Enterprise comes up behind the Reliant and the music kicks in. Torpedoes ready, sir. I can just imagine like being yeah. in the theater and people cheering, you know. It was almost like the gunfight at the OK Corral or that scene in the submarine film. Yeah. Where the two <laughs> submarines are, are and they're in this um they 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 uh, get placed in this uh nebula. Nebula. Yeah. The the Mutara Nebula which uh discharges so much static and electrical impulses that Neither one of them can really see well. The the ship they can't use their they can't use their shields and they don't have good communication. Yeah, it's great. It's and a all, great setup. All the while the music is amped up even more and more. And uh all kinds of things have happened to check off and Terrell kills himself because he can't deal with this thing in his head. Yeah. Oh, let's see. Um yeah, the character development in this movie is really good. <laughs> even even for smaller roles like Paul Winfield's role as uh very Terrell. and uh nicholas meyer wanted paul winfield for the role because he thought he was such an excellent actor even though it was a limited part and he was yeah. he was very believable it was spock yeah. that that figured out that khan's tactics were two-dimensional it was yeah. Spock. Yeah. yeah leave it to him because of his but the, superior intelligence but they get they get attacked one more time and then they they lose uh their main warp engines and uh there's a radiation leak and uh, the the ra- the uh, the ship that Khan's on uh, is also really badly damaged, and pretty much everybody on the ship is dead yeah. or going to be dying. And so, Kirk wants Khan to to surrender, and Khan's like, "Nope, <laughs> I'm not done yet." No, because then he's gonna he's gonna like turn on the Genesis device and blow it up, which will pretty much wipe out everything within. Within the nebula, know, thou- within the nebula, within the nebula, yeah, yeah. It was thousands and thousands of miles, if if not millions. Um, so Spock, without saying anything to anybody, just leaves the bridge, goes down to engineering, and uses his Vulcan neck pinch <laughs> on <laughs> on McCoy. I love that scene. Take so, that. but I had a question for you, and I, I I'm sure that it's been answered other places uh. or whatnot, but I. What do you think he's? What do you think he meant when he said to McCoy, "He said remember," and he put his hand on his forehead and said, "Remember." Oh, I think, man, that's that. Well, again, it's a part of the beauty of this film. 
you can have a different interpretation based on who who you are and what you what you saw in the film. I think he was telling him to remember that what he was going to do was sacrifice himself for the good of the ship and reconnect somehow the warp drive. Uh, I had a different interpretation, which was that he knew something about himself or maybe the Genesis device or something that he wanted McCoy to know and that he somehow transferred that knowledge to McCoy at the oh. very end. And and maybe it was that I want my body to go down to the new planet. I want, you know, I oh, like, yeah, that like, makes so sense. maybe, so maybe McCoy was like the one that says, you know, we should have, they don't ever show this in the film. This is all just in my head. But I, I thought he wanted McCoy to remember that you need to make sure that my body goes down to the planet. I think um, I like that better than my theory. Yeah, because I, I was like, why would they put that in there? There's no reason to put that in there, that one line of, like, remember, other than it gives you an opening to have his body rejuvenated on the planet because of the Genesis device. Like, and, and wow. McCoy remembers to, to, to do that. To do that. The, I don't know. That's my headcanon on that one. You see Spock's coffin doing a soft landing on the, on yeah. the Genesis planet. You know, I have to stop for just a second. But the last few minutes, we've really focused on all these subplots within the film, The Wrath of Khan. There is no counterpart to this in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Well, and I think it, it's I don't want to do yeah, I don't want to do like short shrift on the the motion picture. It has its merits. Like it, it it's very beautiful in some ways, and I think it's very meditative in some ways. It's also just very ponderous in its pacing. And some of the acting is a little stilted, but but it's not even the acting so much as just the story that they're given to act is not very deep. That's true. And so I just, I don't know, there's not as much there for me to like think about or connect with as with in the second movie where there's just a lot going on. No kidding, there's like 10 different stories. So we have Spock, who's now gone to the engine room to restore the warp drive. But he dies from the radiation and then you get to that scene where he has restored the drive, but Captain Kirk arrives. That's a really poignant part of the film. That's that's one of the best scenes in all of film, I think. Yeah, where it is where they they're looking at each other through the the glass, and he says, "I have been and always will be your friend." That's such a great line. And you know the way it ends, you kind of think, "Well, is there going to be a, another film that?" gets us back to scene Spock, but they could have ended it there and not had him back the way they filmed it. it. Was a, yeah, it was an interesting choice, though, to have him do the voiceover at the very end of, like, the mission that the Enterprise is on. Yes. yeah. You know, and I thought that that leaves it even more open for him to come back. Like, I wonder if by the end of the movie, if he wasn't more open to to the idea of coming back and they had him do that that monologue. I can I can only guess, but if I were him, I probably would be thinking to myself, this has been so much fun and so much easier to do. I could actually do more of them. Yeah. Well, anyway, the uh, back to my uh, 25th note. The Genesis, the Genesis device explodes, and the new planet capable of sustaining life starts to take shape. But... The Enterprise escapes because the warp drive's working. Mm -hmm. And they go back to the Reliant and they recover uh, 
uh, Kirk's former lover and we, what we think is his son. There's a great scene. There's another great scene that kind of choked me up a little bit, which I guess only because I'm a dad now probably wouldn't have had the same impact on me as a teenager. But when the son comes in and Kirk's sitting there and he's trying to read this book, but his glasses have broken yeah. and he's holding it out at the, at arm's length that I could just like, Oh my God, I could totally relate to this. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> More so every day. Yeah. And then his son comes in and he wants to like say something to him about, uh, he kind of apologizes to him for the way he had acted earlier and that he really looks up to him as a father. And then, Kirk doesn't even really say anything. He just kind of gets up and walks over to him and puts his hand on his, his shoulder and then pulls him in for a hug, and he just gives him a hug. And I was like, oh, man, that that's totally getting to me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. you got to be a parent to really feel that. So, um, well, I think it's clear that we like both film, but uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan... I would, you know what, I, I, I want to watch the director's cut of the motion picture because I, what I really missed about that movie was I missed Robert Wise's touch to it. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. we've talked about the little things that he does in his films, like uh, in the the submarine movie, um, how, he, how when the guy came in to tell... Um, oh, the Burt Lancaster character that he wasn't going to be the, the captain. And he has the milk. Yeah, and he has the milk. Like it's it's those little things like that 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 he adds to the film, and and I felt like a lot of that was missing, and I just felt like it was so. It just felt it's weird, but it felt rushed. Like I I wish that they'd taken another six months to finish up that movie to really get it to where I think it could have been, because I love the idea of it, like of this idea of the Voyager starship going off to some really distant planet that's run only by machines and then getting like a super upgrade to like complete its mission and then coming back to earth with all this data and all this knowledge but 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 no context for like what it was actually supposed to do with that information and feeling like yeah. all the people on the planet were some kind of an infestation that needed to be eliminated like that's a great sci-fi idea and and then it just got so hung up on just kind of like getting there you know it just took so long to get there that it just kind of lost its pace and i lost interest yeah, it in it ran out of gas yeah. the, what what you just described sounds like a ray bradbury totally plot. totally you know yeah or an arthur c clark book or something yes oh yeah what was yeah because he he wrote 2001, and I feel like there was a lot of yeah. like parallels between the two films. It's just that um, 2001 really came together well under under Stanley Kubrick. So, well, I'm glad we did this, and um, I, I have to do a little research. I want to see the director's cut as well, because mm -hmm. I'm sure he honed it down, and and uh, that was near the end of his life. I think. Yeah, I think it was really near the end of his life. I think maybe it was like this one thing done. that I got to finish before I go, you know. <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. Well, ratings on these films. Should we? I, I can start if you'd yeah, like. Yeah, go for it. I would give Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan a 10. Yeah, I, would, I gave it a 10 as well, for sure. It's, I just loved it. And it hit all the notes for me with directing and acting and the story and the music and the set design and the uh, special effects it all was there 
I, it, of all the Star Trek movies or TV shows or anything, it's the, to me, it's the uh, premiere. It's the gold standard of that series. Yeah. And, and you said it well when you said that, that uh, Kirk had met his match in Khan. <laughs> in, yeah. terms of, in terms of ego and narcissism wow yeah and, and the first movie didn't really have an antagonist so much it no, was sort it was of this unknown thing it was like this unknown thing that was coming to the earth but there was no character to it per se on the uh, Star Trek the motion picture I, I would give it a 6 mm. I know it yeah, I find it. Well, it's hard to compare the two because they're they're just anyway. I didn't find it as as in, involving, engaging. The pacing was uh, slow. I, I get what you're saying about the overall picture, of this this the the plot or the theme, but it just the execution of it for me was needed some work. Yeah, I think it was good that we reviewed both of them because there were some echoes in the Wrath of Khan to the first film. Like when, when they're first flying to view the enterprise from the outside and they're kind of doing a little tour of the enterprise, mm -hmm. the way they did that in the second one was, was great. It was just long enough. It gave you just enough image of the ship to go, wow, it's so big and it's so impressive, you know, but in the first film they spent, I swear five minutes, like doing a complete 360 of the whole thing. And they just spent way too much time there. And the music was, it, it fit what they were doing, but it just didn't fit what I thought the film would be like. What was your rating on Star Trek, the motion picture? Um, I gave it a seven. Seven? Yeah, because there were certain things about it that I really loved. Like, I loved the idea of what it was about. I loved the, when they fly through the cloud, like, that was awe-inspiring. And the effects there were great. Um, I liked sort of the the getting everybody back together kind of thing that they did at the beginning, even though it was a little drawn out, but I, I liked some of that. Um, well the, yeah, the, it was it was it was sort of above average for me, but not not at a high end. I guess the thing that I didn't mention that's a real plus for Star Trek the motion picture, it jump started the whole enter the whole uh, series of films. Right. Yeah, I did want to mention that too. Yeah. Without that film, we wouldn't have all the other movies and TV series, I don't think. Wrath of Khan, in, in many ways, felt like the first Star Trek movie. I mean, there was a number two after it, but you didn't need to see the first movie at all to, to understand it or get it, or even to have seen Spacey, the episode that it was a sequel to. It was much more like the original show that we all remembered and loved, uh, you know, with a focus on the characters. It accepted the passage of time. It was just a, a delightful movie from beginning to end. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan is the Star Trek, but The Empire Strikes Back is the Star Wars. It's the best of the bunch and just one of the best movies of all time, period. And, and they had talked about originally just doing a low-budget science fiction movie. Can you imagine a low-budget sort of like B-movie version of Star Trek? Like, it's such a premier uh, property know. now, and they've done so much with it. It's hard for me to think about that. Especially if they did it with uh, in black and white and used one of the directors that we've 
uh, like the guy from Plan Nine from Outer Space. That is that is not even a B movie. That's like a, that's like an alternate universe version of Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Yeah, you'd see a guy holding the Enterprise as it flew through space. <laughs> yeah. So um, excellent. Excellent. That was a, this was fun. I don't think I've ever taken so many notes on any of the reviews that we've done. I yeah, just got I think, drawn into the Wrath of Khan. You know, I'm really glad. Like I said, I'm really glad we did them back to back. I would have been, I would have been left feeling a little bit let down after just watching the first one, but the second one was like, wow, that was amazing. And I hadn't seen it since watching it in the theater, surprisingly. Uh, and it was it was just as good as I remembered it. So, well, maybe we'll feel even better about the motion picture one once we see the director's cut. Yeah, we'll have to try to get that, and we'll revisit uh, that at some point. So, yeah, that was our reviews of Star Trek: The Motion Picture and Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan. And I'm sure we didn't do either of those justice for like as much information as out there about them and as many different reviews as there've been. But uh, I think we covered some of the highlights for us anyway. And uh yeah up next is the yokai monster trilogy we're going to review um, all three of those movies in one episode but we're going to focus on the first one which is called spook warfare and that is going to kick off a series of movies uh foreign films uh, films made outside of the united states uh and uh, we have those picked out in there on our website uh you can go to the episode listing and check those out and then after that, we're going to do a series of movies uh, that have music from Bernard Herrmann. And I had an idea over the weekend of maybe doing James Dean movies, like three or four James Dean movies after that. Oh, he had three big ones. He yeah, and I watched, big... I watched yeah. Rebel Without a Cause over the weekend. I'm like, okay, now I'm intrigued. I'm wanna, I want to watch the other couple ones that he did. East of Eden? And giant, right? Giant, yeah. Those were yeah. the three. He did a ton of live television back in the fifties. He loved doing that because he thought of it as almost a uh, play because it was live. There was no film. You had to do it. If you made a mistake, you kept moving. He really loved that from what from what I've read. And my friend John, uh, I guess, either met him or knew a little bit about him. He said he did really like the live television. So there's a lot of that, but only three big films. So I, I propose we do those three movies after the Bernard Herrmann, yeah. Okay, that's good. We got like six months of movies planned out here. <laughs> and we still have, we, we each came up with, I think, five Bernard Herrmann movies. Yeah, so we, we got to pick those, down. pick those up, yep. So that was our review of the first two Star Trek movies and coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt Johnson. And from Los Angeles is Bob Johnson, wishing you all happy movie watching. Captain's Log, Stardate 8141.6. Starship Enterprise departing for SETI Alpha 5 to pick up the crew of USS Reliant. All is well. And yet I can't help wondering about the friend I leave behind. There are always possibilities, Spock said. And if Genesis is indeed life from death, I must return to this place again. He's really not dead. As long as we remember him. It's a 
far, far better thing I do than I have ever done before. A far better resting place I go to than I've ever known. Is that a poem? Mm. Something Spock was trying to tell me. My birthday. You okay, Jim? How do you feel?
I just, I just feel like we could go on for hours about those movies. It's like... <laughs> Con bloodsucker. You're going to have to do your own dirty work now. Do you hear me? Do you! Kirk. Kirk, you're still alive, my old friend. Still old friend. You managed to kill just about everyone else, but like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. Perhaps I no longer need to try. Khan, you've got Genesis, but you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her. Marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. Ah!